So today we're going to talk about um, what has been called the first missionary journey, and and more specifically, Paul's first missionary journey. Um, and what we what we want to notice is that it was from this. Uh, church in Antioch that Barnabas and Saul, who was also called Paul, uh, were sent out by the Spirit. Now, remember, as I mentioned before, Antioch, um, it really became, in, in so many ways, the, the kind of the new center for uh, gospel ministry at the time. It, it eclipsed Jerusalem, actually. Jerusalem seemed to get sort of bogged down in all of this Jewishness and kind of legalism and stuff, but Antioch was free, and they were just about getting the gospel out. So it was from that thriving center of gospel ministry that these guys were sent out on what has been called uh, the first missionary journey. Now, this journey took them from Syria. That's where it began. So Antioch uh, was in Syria, and it took them uh, to Cyprus, initially, and then on to five cities in what uh, we know today as Turkey. So they sailed from Seleucia in Syria uh, to Salamis in Cyprus, then they walked the length of Cyprus to Paphos, and then they uh, boarded a ship again and they sailed to, again, what we would know today as Turkey. They arrived at uh, the, the, the city of Perga, and then they went on to Antioch of Pisidia, Antioch is uh, not the same Antioch. It's a different one. Um, Many of these cities, like um, Alexandria, for example, Alexandria in Egypt was named after Alexander the Great. Uh, Antioch was, uh, both of these cities were named after uh, the Seleucid rulers. So when, when Alexander the Great died, four of his generals divided up his kingdom, and it was the Seleucids that ruled in Syria. And there, from them came uh, Antiochus. And so the cities were named after these rulers. So that's why here in the passage, you've got two different uh, cities with the same name, but they're in two different locations. Then uh, from Antioch and Pisidia, they went to Iconium, then to Lystra, and then to Derbe. And it would be in these cities that they would preach the gospel and establish churches. So when Jesus gave the command to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, the, the apostles interpreted that to mean go preach the gospel and establish churches. That's exactly what they did. And that is really the New Testament model for missions. It's to preach the gospel, establish churches, so the new saints, those who receive Christ through the preaching of the gospel, those new saints can grow to maturity in the faith, and gospel ministry can spread throughout and impact for good surrounding cities, towns, and villages. So that, that, that was the model that they followed. They would go into a place, they'd preach, people would come to faith, and then they would establish a church, a gathering, where they would now instruct them and teach them in the ways of the Lord. That is New Testament um, mission right there. And all mission work, including mercy mission, which would be, say, 
going into a place uh, where there is relief needed, maybe there's a disaster in some area. We, we've done that many times over. We go on what might be called uh, a mercy mission. We go in on the, the tail end of a disaster and try to re, uh, or help you know, rebuild the community or whatever. Uh, but whether it's mercy mission or medical mission, medical mission obviously is taking you know, medical uh, people into areas and, and ministering to people. Uh, I prayed with a lady this morning after first service. I mentioned medical mission. She had never been to the church before. She came, her sister brought her today. She said, I came just to hear this message because I'm leading a medical mission to Nigeria in a couple of weeks. And some of the things you said really uh, spoke to me, she said. So, but medical mission, um, we do that as well. Uh, serving and strengthening missions. This would be missions where you come alongside of existing, maybe smaller churches or struggling churches, and you come to uh, serve and strengthen. But here's my point. Whether it's mercy or medical or strengthening missions, whatever it is, it all has to be motivated by love for God and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. Uh, any kind of mission that excludes the preaching of the gospel is not a biblical mission. It's not a New Testament mission. Now, I say that because there's always pressure coming from certain people uh, in regard to gospel preaching. They, as a matter of fact, they say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, it's fine to go in with your medical people and it's fine to go in and help with the relief. That's all good, but you, you know, you shouldn't try to uh, convert people. You shouldn't you know, share the gospel with them. Um, if they're, you know, just, they're fine just the way they are. Well, the people who say that are generally materialist who have no belief in the soul or the spirit or anything like that. So they don't see any value in uh, preaching the gospel to people. But of course, we know that even though you might, uh, you know, help somebody externally, which is a good thing, if you neglect their soul, if you fail to tell them uh, the, the greater reality of the salvation of Christ, then you fail to meet the, the standard of a biblical mission. So when we do missions, whatever we're doing, we are making sure that everything is always rooted in uh, the gospel. People know that we're doing what we're doing because... Uh, Ultimately, we want you to know that God loves you, Christ died for you, and you can have a relationship with him. So that's just a little bit of a side note. Um, what I want to do is I want to walk us through these two chapters. So this is the first mission, missionary journey. There are five cities, as I mentioned, that they went to. Um, I, I wouldn't want to try to read through the whole two chapters, but I do want to highlight um, what happened when they left Antioch, went all the way to Derby, and then came back again. So let me just give a quick overview. And then we're going to come and back, and we're going to look at seven marks of a spirit-led mission. So first of all, uh, you have them leaving uh, Syria, as we saw, and they sailed to Paphos. Uh, they landed in Salamis, which would be the eastern part of the island. They made the journey. They preached there, it says, in the synagogues. Then they made the journey to Paphos, 
And it was there that there was the um, Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsular. He's like the governor of the, of the country. He was the Roman governor. And he was an intelligent man who was interested in the gospel. He wanted to hear. He had heard about uh, these two men, Barnabas and Saul. He had heard that they were preaching. And he was interested in that. But remember, what happened is as he called for them, there was a certain sorcerer who obviously had influence and he tried to prevent Sergius Paulus from hearing the message. He didn't want him to hear the gospel. And obviously as a sorcerer, here's a man who's under the direct influence of the demonic. And so Paul actually pronounces a judgment upon him. He's blinded temporarily. Sergius Paulus ends up hearing the gospel message. He receives the gospel and so that's where the ministry kind of leaves off in Cyprus. And they board a ship in Paphos, and now they, they sail to Perga. And then immediately from there, they go to this place, uh, Antioch in Pisidia. And so what they do here now is they, they go into the synagogue. So they're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. They're Jews. Uh, Barnabas is a, is a Levite, part of the priestly group, and uh, Saul is a rabbi. And so it's a perfect situation for them to go into the synagogue. And so if we pick up in chapter 13, let me read just a few verses. Uh, in verse 14, it says, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So this is where things start in Antioch. They're in the synagogue. And so here are these two men. They come in, they're recognized as men of you know, spiritual influence. And so the, the ruler of the synagogue says, hey, do you have a word of exhortation? Paul says, yes. And so he gets up and, and now Paul preaches the gospel. He uh, takes the people in the synagogue on a, on a historical journey, much like Stephen did when he preached to the Sanhedrin. Uh, Paul just walks them through their history and he brings them to Jesus as the Messiah and then he calls for them to put their faith in Christ. Now, as would often be the case, there in the synagogues, um, two things happened. The Jews, for the most part, were rather cool to the message. They, were, they, they didn't uh, get so excited about it. Um, they didn't see themselves as really needing a savior. They were Jews after all. But, but the Gentiles among them, they were the ones that were, they, they just thought this was the greatest news ever. This was indeed the gospel. It was good news. And they wanted to hear more. So that's what happened there in Antioch. Um, they preached. And when they went out, it says that the Gentiles, verse 42 of chapter 13, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. And so verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear 
the word of God. So they found this interesting thing that the people that they didn't necessarily expect to respond were the ones who responded and the ones that they thought would respond didn't respond. So, of course, they thought the Jews would respond. After all, they're bringing a message of the Jewish Messiah. They're coming and, and telling them that the prophets are uh, fulfilled in, in Jesus. And yet there's a coldness, there's an indifference. But when the Gentiles hear it, they are, they're open to it and they're receiving it. And so almost the whole city comes together but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us. And so that was what happened in Antioch. Now, as they uh, were ministering to the Gentiles, once again, uh, the Jews stirred up certain people and they expelled uh, Barnabas and uh, Paul. Uh, they expelled them from their region and it says that they shook the dust off their feet against them and then they came to Iconium. So, Chapter 14, now they come to, from Antioch, they come to Iconium. And once again, they go together into the synagogue and uh, they speak and a great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed. But once again, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so this, this is the pattern. This happens wherever they go. Um, they're, they're met with... Um, an openness from the Gentiles generally and a hostility from the Jews, a resistance from the Jews. So eventually they're expelled from the area there in Iconium. And so next they come to Lystra in verse eight. And so it's in Lystra that Paul, um, he's preaching. And as he's preaching, there's a man in the crowd that he sees, the man's crippled. He's never walked his whole life. He was crippled from birth. And Paul sees something just in this man, maybe his attentiveness or whatever. Paul senses that he believes and that he has faith to be healed. And so Paul, then it says in verse 10 of chapter 14, he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped up and walked. Now, this is a, a Gentile crowd here. So look, look what it says. Now, when the people saw that Paul had, uh, what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lycaonian language, this is their response, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So they're saying these two men are gods. And Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude, crying out, saying, men, don't do this. We're, we're men just like you are. But, you know, think about how crazy that was. I mean, here, these are the apostles preaching the gospel and the people think, oh, that's Zeus and that's Hermes and Call the priest and let's have a sacrifice for him. Yeah. Kind of a crazy situation. 
to say the least. Now, um, once again, after all of the chaos, um, Paul, you know, they, they once again communicate the gospel. But the Jews, verse 19, uh, from Antioch and Iconium, they come there to Lystra and having persuaded the multitude, it says, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So this is how intense things have gotten to the point where they actually stone the apostle Paul. They think they've killed him. However, verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And there in Derby, they preached the gospel once again. And then from there, they began to make their journey back, followed their footsteps essentially uh, back to where everything originated. And they end up at the end of the chapter, we read that together, they end up back in Antioch of Syria reporting um, the work that God had done. Now, this trip, it covered approximately 1,200 miles. Now, most of those miles were on foot. Think about that. So, of course, some of it was traveling on sea, but, but most of it was walking. They walked probably eight, 900 miles. And there, this, this, this missionary journey was about a two-year period. So this was a serious, serious uh, endeavor, taking two years uh, to accomplish it and, and all of these miles. And as we can see, there were many uh, positive results from it, but there were also many challenges. So what I want to do now is I want, I want us to look at seven marks of a spirit-led gospel mission. And we're going to see, and I, and I want you to grab hold of this, a spirit-led gospel mission. So this is something God is leading them to do. They, this is not an idea that they, come up, they came up with and said, hey, I think we should go do this. This is something God specifically, he said, remember, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them. And then it says when they're being sent out and they were sent out by the spirit. So this is a, a spirit-led gospel mission. But what I want us to see is that it doesn't always uh, turn out the way we might think when we think of a spirit-led gospel mission. Because I would imagine that one of the things that we would think if it was a spirit-led gospel mission, that it would be smooth sailing. I mean, after all, God's with us. God's calling us to do this. And so uh, it should be you know, fair weather all the way. It should be easy all the way. But that's not true. That is almost the opposite of what reality is. But we so often make the mistake of thinking that following the Lord and doing God's will and all of that, it's just, you know, everything's gonna be smooth if we're doing that. Not so. So the first thing we see, one of the first marks of a spirit-led gospel mission is that there is satanic opposition. Listen, anytime you decide to follow Jesus into service to him, you are going to be opposed by the devil. He's going to oppose you. The devil does not want a single human being believing the gospel. 
And anyone who's going to take it upon themselves to, uh, in some way, shape, or form, you know, try to in- preach the gospel or encourage the preaching of the gospel or anything like that, you can be sure of this. The enemy is going to oppose you. We see in the everything we just looked at, we see initially the resistance that comes from Elamus, the sorcerer. We see the persecution in each of the places where the disciples go. Now, remember, these guys are going into heavily demonized regions. These people are under the control of evil spirits. Their religions are all idolatrous uh, religions that are, um, you know, filled with all kinds of wickedness and perversion and, and all of these kinds of things. And, and this is what the people are captivated by. And the devil doesn't want to let go of any of those that he holds captive. And so the resistance, the persecution, and we see that even the stoning of Paul, that's some pretty serious opposition. And the crazy thing is a lot of it is being instigated by the religious leaders. So the Jews are instigating the persecution. They're stirring up the Gentiles. So you've got false religion in Judaism at this point, and you've got paganism, and they're kind of working together uh, to try to thwart the advance of the gospel. So listen, this is a reality. When we step out to serve the Lord, the enemy's going to oppose us. You know, if you've ever thought or planned or, or gone uh, in, you know, any kind of an outreach or, or something even as simple. If you decided, if you decided today, I'm, I want to be a, let's just say a Sunday school teacher. I want to teach young people about Jesus. If you decided that today and you were determined to do it, watch out because all hell will break loose in the weeks ahead before you can get in there. The enemy will do anything he can to try to discourage you. Now, don't be discouraged by that. Just know that that is a reality. There's nothing that we're going to do uh, for the kingdom that's not going to meet satanic opposition in some way, shape, or form. Now, some of you know I just came back from Australia yesterday, and um, a few weeks ago, when we were getting ready to head out for the trip, um, you know, there was there was this like for three or four days. You know, I had this, this thing where I'm just having these kind of just weird things going through my head, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, what kind of a thought is that? Or why am I having that? And, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily connecting the dots, but then I, I had this point where I was just feeling this weird fatigue and I was, this is literally what I was doing. I was in my closet. Nobody saw this. I'm just telling you, uh, I told first service. <laughs> I was in my closet. I was trying to pack my suitcase. And I'm in my closet and I'm on my knees and I'm looking at my suitcase. And seriously, for about 15 minutes, I'm just looking at it going, I can't pack this thing. I'm just so tired. I don't want to go on this trip. You know, all of this stuff going on. And just kind of suddenly it dawned on me. I thought, wow, this is warfare. Now, having gone and come back, I can see why it was warfare because God did some great things. People were encouraged. People were blessed. Uh, People were ministered to. People were strengthened to go on in the work. And that's 
something the devil just doesn't want to happen. So he opposes all of our efforts to preach the gospel, to encourage those who are preaching the gospel or, or any of those things. So just know that that is a reality. Uh, opposition will come. Secondly, there will be in a spirit-led mission, there will be disappointments. See, my point again is to tell us not everything is going to necessarily run smoothly, but don't assume falsely because of that, that, well, God's not in it because it's not running smoothly. No, God is in it. And it's not running smoothly because the enemy's trying to thwart it. That's what we have to to get. So there's disappointment. So here's the disappointment. In verse five, it tells us in chapter 13, did you notice it says that they had Barnabas and Saul, they go out and they have, it says John as their assistant. Now this John is John Mark. And John Mark is the author of the uh, the second gospel. He's somebody who uh, we find uh, references to in, in many places in scripture. But the next reference to him is that he leaves the mission just shortly after it gets started. So the disappointment is that here's John, who's their assistant, John Mark, and he gets discouraged, he gets fearful, whatever the case is, and he just bails on the whole thing. He's like, see, I, I can't do this, guys. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And that's what he does. And this was a disappointment. No doubt it was a disappointment to Barnabas because Barnabas was his uncle. And Barnabas brought him along as his nephew, like, hey, come on and help us. You, you'll be a real asset to us. So Barnabas is no doubt disappointed Paul is downright upset because later when they're about to go on their second journey and Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark. Paul says, no, no way. We're not bringing him. He left. He didn't follow through. So there was that disappointment. And you know, this happens again. You you, know, you uh, sometimes you know you have a vision you're going to do this and you've got people around you and yeah we're going to do this and and then as you move toward it all of a sudden people just start dropping off like wait I thought we were going to do this together oh you know I don't know I don't really feel a peace about it or no I don't want to do that and and then suddenly you find that the great vision for the mission you're the only one left with it and you know you're kind of disappointed and you're probably wondering like how do I even go forward without the help this happens Anybody who's been on the mission field knows that this is exactly what happens. You get somebody and you think, man, this person's going to be perfect. They're going to be such a help. They're going to be such a blessing. And they come and it's not that. And then before they can even get settled, they just decide, you know, I'm out of here. So there's that satanic opposition. There's the disappointment. But here's other marks. They're preaching the word. We see that all through each one of these places. This is what they did. They went into these cities and they preached the gospel. Because, you know, God has people in every place. And you know what they're waiting for? They don't even know they're waiting for it, but they are actually waiting for someone to come with the gospel. It's like when Paul said to, or when Jesus said to Paul, 
when he was in the city of Corinth, and he was fearful because up until that point, he had been um, persecuted and driven out of Thessalonica and uh, beaten in Philippi and all that. So he comes to uh, Corinth, and he's fearful. He thinks, you know, this, I'm, I'm going to be beaten again, or I'm going to be uh, arrested or, or something like that. And, but it says that Jesus appeared to him and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't keep silent, but speak, for I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. And you see, God has many people in cities that haven't yet come to faith in Jesus. They need to hear the message. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the story. And so that's what a mission is about. A mission is about preaching the word of God, bringing God's word. As we've already seen, they started in the synagogue. It was a natural opportunity. It was an open door for them. But after a season, they would get rejected in the synagogues, and then they would just go to where the Gentiles congregated, wherever it was. I think of Paul in uh, the city of Ephesus, where um, he ended up in, in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, who was he? He was probably some philosopher, but he had a school, and Paul was able to rent his facility, apparently, and it was from there that he shared the gospel, and it says, and that through that ministry, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord, but that's what they were doing. They were sharing the gospel. They were preaching the gospel. They were proclaiming uh, the name of Jesus, and conversions were taking place. So here's the encouraging part. You got satanic opposition, you got disappointment, but as you preach the word, guess what? People come to faith. People come to know the Lord. And that's what happened. There were those who resisted. There were those who were disinterested. But as we read through the stories here, we find that there were many who believed. There were many who came to put their faith and their trust in Christ. And when we are on a spirit-led mission, there are going to be converts. There are going to be people that meet the Lord, that come to know him. I, I can think in my own mind of people that on various mission endeavors, we had the opportunity of leading them to Jesus. And to look now, you know, 30 years later, uh, 20 years later, and to see that they're still walking with the Lord. That's the thing that always just absolutely amazes me. It's so wonderful to see that, uh, a changed life. And they're still following along with the Lord. That's what God does. He saves people, converts, multitudes, it said in the text here, both of Jews and Greeks believed. And what we also see as we look at these different uh, endeavors in these different towns, we see that God's presence and power was with them. Now, this is the thing. There's the opposition. In, in their case, there was the um, persecution 
that actually arose, the extreme case of Paul being stoned. But at the same time, there was God's presence and power with them. I mean, after all, remember, Paul said to Elamus the sorcerer, he said, you son of the devil, you're going to be struck with blindness. And he was blind for a season. And we also see that the man, uh, the lame man was healed. As, as Paul saw this man that had never walked, he was healed. So, you know, there's, there's these two things happening simultaneously. There's the, the enemy opposing, but there's God at work. And listen, we need to also understand that today, those same kinds of things still happen. God still does wonders. He still does signs. He still does supernatural things. As, as people go out in faith and trust him, this is my point. You can expect that God goes with you. And he will do things that you couldn't do. And he will make things happen that otherwise couldn't happen. And there will be supernatural things that occur. Now, they might not be healings like we're looking at here, but they might be. And even if they're not that, there, there's, always, there's always these things that you can look at and you see, wow, you know, that was the Lord. Only the Lord could do that. And, and just coming fresh off of this uh, trip to Australia, uh, you know, talking to those who are on the mission, talking to those who are doing the work, and you hear these, you know, little stories here and there about just the things that God is doing that really, you can't explain them humanly. There isn't any rhyme or reason for this from the human standpoint. You recognize, man, this is the hand of the Lord on this. Another mark of the mission is discipleship. You see, they, they made disciples, and that's really what, that's what um, the whole mission is really all about. Because remember, Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples of all the nations. Now, you have to have people converted before they can become disciples. But once a person is converted, they're not necessarily a disciple. A disciple is something that is occurs through the maturing process. So the mission is not to just go preach the message of salvation. That's where it starts. But it has to be followed up with teaching the new believers and establishing them in the faith. As I said in the beginning, that's what the mission is about. It's, it's leading people to Christ and then giving them the instruction that they need to grow in maturity uh, in their faith so they can become strong. And we read there at the um, end of chapter 14, it says that, verse 21, um, when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. See, that's what it is. It's teaching them, helping them to grow. Now listen, you don't have to go on a international mission to do that. There are people all around us that we can have a, a, a part of bringing them to maturity in the faith. If you're an older Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've got a pretty solid 
walk with the Lord and you're, you're pretty grounded yourself. You know, God wants you to take that and he wants you to use it with somebody else. He wants you to help others come along. But this is, this is part of it. The discipleship is the, this is where the labor comes in. This is where the hard work comes in. You know, sometimes the, the easy part, easy is relative here. Um, the easy part sometimes is, is, you know, preaching the gospel, getting people to receive Christ. The hard part is to see them grow in the faith. That's where it takes the perseverance, takes the patience, takes the endurance. Because if we just lead people to Jesus, but never see them go on to maturity, they will just struggle the, the rest of their lives. You know, when I was uh, young, it was a long time ago, um, you know, God, God sent me and a handful of people on a mission into Eastern Europe. Now, at the time we went, we didn't really know exactly what we were even doing. Um, we, we just knew that we were supposed to go. And so we went and we, we discovered that there were lots of young people that were open to the gospel. So as we began to share the gospel on the streets, these young people started coming to faith in Christ. And I remember after you know, about 10 days or so of doing ministry on the streets in uh, a city called Subotica, which is in northeastern, what used to be Yugoslavia, uh, which is Serbia now. Um, so we led these young people to the Lord. And when it was time to leave, I, I knew that if we just left them without any kind of follow-up, I knew that they wouldn't survive. And so I said to them, I gathered them together and I said, hey, listen, you know, you, you guys, and there were, there were about a dozen of them. I said, look, you guys, you know, you've come to know the Lord. You've been with us now for about 10 days. You've kind of seen what we're doing. And I said, you know, I want you to just, I want you to stick together. Just keep doing what you're doing. Keep reading Bible, your Bibles, pray with each other, encourage each other. And I, I said, within a month, I promise I will send somebody back to help you grow in your faith. I just knew at that moment that we, we had to follow through with that. I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I just made them that promise. So I came back home, I was pastoring at Vista at the time, um, but I came up here, I, I don't know why I came up, but I, you know, probably came up to visit my in-laws or something. Uh, but I was here at the church and I saw a young guy named Mike Harris and Mike was walking across the parking lot and I had known Mike for some years and I think he was 19 or 20 at the time. And I said, hey, uh, what are you doing? And you know, I think he said he was going surfing because that's what Mike is normally doing, going surfing. And I said, you want to go to Yugoslavia? And he literally said, where is that? And I said, well, don't worry about that. Just do you want to go? <laughs> you know, pray about it. So he prayed about it. He got back to me and said, yeah, I want to go. So Mike and another guy named Shane and uh, two young ladies or three sent them there to Subotica and they, Mike took up the work of, of leading these young people and God established 
them in their faith, and he established a church. And since then, he's established about 40 churches in the region that are all rooted back in that first one. And a few months ago, when I went to Budapest, because we were doing the transition uh, there in Budapest from Phil Metzger being the pastor to now Yanni being the pastor, and we, we saw the completion of the cycle, and I, I think I mentioned it, but the kids that we led to Christ on the street in that first trip, they're the ones that are lead, pastoring the churches now. And that's what happens when you, you do the, the work of discipleship, but that's what has to be done. And, and listen, I'm telling you stories that go back you know, 28, 29, almost 30 years, uh, but this same kind of thing this is what we need all around the world today. And not just around the world. We need it in our own country. We need it in our own state. We, we just need, we need good, strong, solid churches wherever we can see them. So they made many disciples and they strengthened them. And all of this, and this is my final point, my seventh point here, all of this as it says in verse 52 of chapter 13, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You know, all of this produces a great joy in our hearts. There, there's nothing like serving Jesus and seeing God work through your life and seeing God work in the lives of other people. You know, it just produces a joy. And, and there's, there's nothing like it that I know of in all the world to produce this kind of joy as to just, you know, it's, it's the joy of the Lord. It's the joy that he gives us. Of course, we have it just because we're the children of God as we think about our relationship with God and all that. But, but there's something special, you know, when you see God use you, when you see the, the work happening and you see people's lives being changed, there, there's just something that, it just fills your heart with joy. So last Sunday, I, I preached at um, two churches, but they're in the same location, just different times. Uh, I preached at Narrowena Baptist Church, which is on the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia. And that was the first service. And then the second service is One Love uh, Fellowship that is a different congregation, but meets at the same church. And... The, the pastor of both of those churches is a friend of mine named Brad Hall. And so, you know, Brad was introducing me to the congregation that morning and, and he got up and he was kind of rehearsing the story of how he got into the ministry. And, you know, I, I completely forgot about certain things. And as Brad was up there talking and telling the story, um, my, my point is, just to hear what God had done in his life and see what God had done in his life, I, I just sat there so f filled with joy. I was, uh, I was leaving Calvary Chapel Vista to move to London. And before I left, I felt a strong sense that I needed to take, there were about 40 men in the church, I needed to take these guys and take them through, I think it was like a 14-week uh, preparation for ministry. And, and I just you know, sort of handpicked uh, the, this group of guys. And I sent letters of invitation out to these guys. And um, Brad's telling this story. He said, he said, I got a letter in the mail. He said, I never imagined that I would be one of these 
you know, people that was selected to do this. And, and he said this, he said, obviously, Pastor Brian saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. So he'd tell the story about how, you know, he was invited to that and he went through that season and then that led him into an opportunity for ministry. Eventually he, he left California, he went and he pastored in Hawaii for several years, 12 years in Maui. And at the end of those 12 years, about eight years ago, Brad called me and he said he was thinking about coming back to California, he's from Huntington Beach and had lived down in uh, North San Diego County for years. So he said he's thinking about coming back, what do I think? I said, well, Brad, you know, of course, any, you could come back to California, sure, it's fine, but you know, there's such a huge world out there, there's such a great need out there. Uh, I said, what, rather than come back to California, why don't you go to Sydney, Australia? Now, I, for the life of me, can't remember why I even said that to him. It must have been that Australia was on my mind at the time for some reason. Uh, but I said that to him, and he said, he said, I would love to go to Australia. Now, I think it, him and I have a mutual friend who was a former pro surfer. I think that was the connection. We were talking about having a church that would be a blessing to them. Uh, but, but anyway, um, so, you know, we, we prayed about that, took the step, moved from Maui to Australia. So, over these years, there have been like four or five times where Brad has called me and said, uh, we can't stay here. I think we're out. My visa's running out. The government's not going to renew it. I can't, you know, get this, that. And boy, I'll tell you, every time it's just like, well, Brad, it's just hard. I would say to him, Brad, it's hard for me to believe that God sent you there just to, you know, have you do what you've done so far and then leave in discouragement. Let's just pray and trust the Lord that he's going to somehow break through. And he's always broken through. Well, to make a long story short, uh, Brad and Christy, their kids, they all have Australian citizenship now. He's pastoring these couple of churches. God's doing really great stuff with them. And just to, to be there and to see that is so much joy, to see the Lord working in and through the lives of people that God has used you to touch or influence. And so what I'm saying to all of us is that there is much joy. Despite the opposition, despite the disappointments, despite the labor, the hard work, and all of those things that go into it, there's, there's joy that just kind of overrules all of it. When you, when you look at everything, you just think, well, Lord, you know, it was all worth it in the end. To just know that, that you have um, touched these lives. And undoubtedly for Paul and for Barnabas, when they came back to Antioch, they came back with that report. I mean, you can be absolutely sure that the uh, 1,200 miles and the two years and the persecution and even the stoning and all of that stuff, it was like, you know what, who cares? Because man, look what God did. And that's what I want us to grab hold of today. Man, the excitement, the joy of serving the Lord. Now, I wanna close with two things. In the course of these chapters, like I said, uh, on the one hand, Paul is preaching. We start off, he's preaching in uh, Antioch and he gives us a tremendous message. He says something in this message that, that I want to, to share. Uh, but also, they share with the, um, 
the believers an important word as well. So two words. First of all, to the believers, to those who have trusted in Christ. Chapter 14, look at what it says. Verse 22. It says, so they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, listen, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So I I want to say this today to you as a, a believer in Jesus. This is the reality. The Christian life is a battle. It's a struggle. There's opposition. There's disappointment. And not only when you go on a mission, it's just as you, as you live for the Lord. These are the realities that we face because it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And I say that because we, we often get the wrong idea. And the wrong idea is that, well, if I'm really following Jesus, if I'm really serving Jesus, everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be smooth. There's not going to be any difficulty. There isn't going to be any challenges. Get that out of your head because it just is not true. Now, there might be some preachers that will tell you that, but they're wrong. (coughs) And (coughs) they're not being honest with the scripture. It's through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom. But that's why we encourage one another. That's why we strengthen one another. That's why we build one another up because we will go through those challenging things. But that's just, <coughs> excuse me, that's just the way it is. And, and yet the Lord is with us. This is just part of it. And <coughs> let's not forget that, um, let me cough first. Let's not forget this. And Paul said it to the Corinthians. Yes, there are many tribulations through which we must enter the kingdom, but let's not forget that the suffering of this present time cannot be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, when you, when you weigh the two things, yeah, you're, you know, you're, gonna have, you're gonna have trouble in life, period. Just, you're just gonna have trouble in life because that's what life is filled with. It's filled with trouble. You can't escape it. But in Christ, there's a purpose behind it, which is not true if you're not in Christ. And there's a reward in the end. The sufferings won't compare with the glory that is to come. So if you're going through some tribulation today, be encouraged. Know that this is just part of the Christian life. Be encouraged. Know that it's a season. Know that it will pass Know that God is with you and know that in the end, there's a great reward. But I want to also take one minute and talk to um, those of you today that maybe you're here and you're not really sure about your relationship with Christ. And maybe you are sure that you don't really have one and you recognize that you're a sinner. If you recognize you're a sinner today, you're light years ahead of a lot of people because a lot of people don't even recognize that. They refuse to believe it. But of course, you can't be saved unless you're a sinner. Now, everybody is a sinner, but not everybody wants to acknowledge it. But here's the good news. 
Paul, when he's preaching in Antioch, he says this to them, chapter 13, verse 38. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. See, here's the good news. The good news is that even though we're sinners, through this man, Jesus Christ, has preached to us the forgiveness of sins. Sin is our biggest problem because sin, first of all, separates us from God. That's our, our problems are all rooted in the fact that we're created by God for God, but we're separated from him because of sin. But through this man, Jesus has preached to you the forgiveness of sins. So my sins can be forgiven. They're removed and the barrier is taken away, and then I'm reconciled to God. I'm brought into a relationship with God. And Paul says that through Jesus is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and he says, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified from uh, under the law of Moses. In other words, what Paul is saying is, you know, under the law of Moses, there were certain sins that you couldn't I mean, if you committed these sins, you were taken and you were put to death. That was, the, that was the consequence. But Paul says that under Jesus, it's a different thing. In other words, what he's saying is there's not any sin that Jesus is not able to forgive. There are certain sins under the law of Moses you could not, you could not really, you know, you'd have to suffer the ultimate consequence. But not so with Jesus. There's no sin whatever it might be, nothing that you have done, no matter how wicked, how horrible, how deplorable it might have been, there's nothing that he is not able to forgive us from if we sincerely come to him and ask him for that forgiveness. And if you do that, he will forgive you, he will cleanse you, he will come into your life, he will renew you, he'll give you a new life just like he did to these people that we're reading about here, these Gentiles that were so empty and lost and void of meaning and purpose and everything else because they were following after idols that couldn't save them or help them. Um, he'll do that for you today. So let's pray. Lord, we pray. I pray today that you would just encourage those who need encouragement Lord, that there are many tribulations that we pass through, but Lord, you promised that the, that the suffering today could not compare with the glory in the future. And Lord, that this is just part of our lives as your followers. Lord, may your spirit encourage us and may we encourage one another as we go through these seasons and times. May we be used to strengthen each other, to persevere through these times. And Lord, I would pray too for anyone today who uh, needs their sins forgiven. They know who they are. They know what they need. They know what their sins are. You know what their sins are. And Lord, I pray today that you would reach out, that they would know that through you is the forgiveness of sins. Whatever sin, no sin, too big, no sin too insignificant or small. Lord, all sins 
have been washed away through your blood. May they open their hearts and receive that. And while we're praying this morning and our eyes are closed right now, if, if you have sin and you say, I, I want that forgiveness of sin, that's me. If that's you, I want you to just slip up your hand because I'm going to pray for you right now and just ask the Lord to do that for you. God bless you. Anyone else? Just slip your hand up. God bless you that are raising your hand. Father, thank you for those that have raised their hand here today. Lord, you know their hearts and you know that they're asking for that forgiveness. And so, Lord, may they know today that they've received your forgiveness. For those of you that raised your hand, just, just say right now, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin. Be my savior. I give myself to you. And Lord, as they do that, just come in by your spirit cleanse them, renew them, bless, restore them. Lord, bring them into that place of joy and blessing. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.